This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hi, I'm Madigan, and you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, a podcast that explores the world through a personal feminist perspective. Hello, hello, everybody. How are we doing on this gorgeous Monday morning? I am recording on a Sunday morning here in... A very rainy Los Angeles. We are experiencing some of the side effects from the hurricanes that are going on in Southern California right now. Thankfully, we are not experiencing any terrible weather, but it's super, super rainy, which is strange in and of itself for Los Angeles, but having it happen in the summer is even stranger. But I'm really enjoying this warm, rainy, cozy day. I'm loving that Max has the day off, so we have the whole family together. It just feels very cozy. But before I can enjoy this wonderful weather, of course, I had to record and chat with all of you. The first thing that I want to say before I get into this week's topic is to give any of the Angry Feminist Book Club listeners a little reminder that we're going to be doing things a little bit differently this month since the second sex by Simone de Beauvoir is unreadable in the allotted time that we gave ourselves. But the first bonus episode that I will be releasing, hopefully it's going to be out within the next couple of days because it's already written and pretty much completed. I do want to still discuss Simone de Beauvoir, and it's something that some of you have brought up to me as well, particularly bringing up the controversy and the fact that she is still you know, regarded as a very well-respected feminist in a lot of ways and philosopher and just kind of the complicated story of her and how we can both be thankful for some of her thoughts and ideas, but also recognize that this person was not all good. In fact, she did a lot of really, really harmful things. I'm going to do another bonus episode. I have a couple ideas of what I want to cover. So I'm actually going to throw out two ideas to all of you right now and you tell me what you want to hear. The first thing that I was thinking is that Max and I would do a drunk history style episode where we talked about Fleetwood Mac, particularly the making of their record Rumors, because I think it would be a really interesting conversation and we'd be drunk or maybe in my case high because I'm trying not to drink as much anymore these days and stick more with the herbs. But I think that would be kind of fun and funny (laughs) and probably really embarrassing as well. But my other idea was the three times I almost joined a cult. And I'm going to leave it at that. (laughs) 
So you all can just tell me what you want to hear for that second bonus episode, and I'll get that out to you as soon as possible. And lastly, to make it up to you, we are going to have a Zoom party for the book club, and that will be on August 30th. I still haven't decided the time and things like that, so I'm going to get that all figured out on the Zoom end. And when I have you know a solid time for all of you, I'll post it on Instagram, and I'll send a message on Patreon and all that kind of stuff to make sure that as many of you as possible can be a part of it. I'm really, really excited to do that. And one other thing before we get into the episode, if you haven't listened to the new show that I'm co-producing, Still Learning with India Oxenberg, I highly recommend you go listen to episode one. It was so much fun making it. It was a lot of work putting it together. And I'm very, very proud of the product. Also, just a little note, all the music that you hear in that show is done by Max as well, and I'm obsessed with all of it. (laughs) He's so fucking talented, my goodness. And you can find Still Learning pretty much everywhere except Apple right now. They're being a pain in the ass, but feel free to listen on Spotify, iHeartRadio, I believe Google Play has it as well. And enjoy. Leave a review on that if you want as well. You can follow the Still Learning Instagram at Still Learning the Podcast. And yeah, that's about it. I hope you're enjoying it all so far. And with that, let's get into today's episode. I chose a very, very, very heavy topic and something that may be triggering to a lot of people. This episode contains discussion of sexual assault, rape, and suicide. So please listen with caution if any of these subjects are a bit sensitive for you. If you have been raped or sexually assaulted and want help or support, please call 1-800-4673 or go to RAIN.org, R-A-I-N-N.org, to chat with someone online. If you're struggling with suicidal thoughts, please call or text 988. In the 17th century, women who made claims of rape were more often than not believed when it came to accusations of rape and sexual assault, since it was thought that a woman would not be so bold as to falsely accuse a man or dare to actively pursue sexual activity on her own, therefore she must have been raped. But that perception changed by the 18th century, and women were now seen as sexually uncontrollable, which made the claim of rape less believable. The dismissal of women's claims were made worse by the fact that women were not considered full citizens. Since the beginning of recorded history, there has been written evidence of rape and sexual assault. It's in the writings from ancient Greece. It's in the Bible, in the letters of early explorers. And one thing we know about history is that it's usually told by the victors. And in the cases of sexual assault, the victor is most often a man. Sharon Block, a professor of history at the University of California, Irvine, writes, The historic rapes that mattered are the only ones where man saw themselves damaged. So the only ones that were recorded were the ones where the man was also hurt as well, whether it be physically, emotionally, or through his reputation. Sexual assault has often been linked to war as well in the past, from the mass rape committed by Soviet soldiers as they advanced into Nazi Germany to the sexual violence amid the genocides in Rwanda in 1995. And the one thing that I see all of these having in common is that these perpetrators purposefully chose vulnerable people, and instead of caring for them or leaving them alone, they hurt them. For as long as rape and sexual assault have existed, victims have not been believed. 
They've been blamed, forgotten, shamed, even exiled or killed. There's an ancient distrust of women and the power of their sexuality. There seems to have always been this disbelief in women who claim sexual assault, like the boy who cried wolf. Unless, of course, it's a white woman accusing a black man. Then we all really care and believe the girl all of a sudden. There are examples of trials throughout history where the victim is shamed and the perpetrator is let off the hook. And I'm going to get into some of those shortly. Introduction of a victim's sexual history into a rape trial as evidence is morally wrong, and in some places, legally wrong. In the late 70s and early 80s, almost all jurisdictions in the United States adopted some form of rape shield statute. In Canada, the criminal code restricts the admissibility of evidence that the complainant has engaged in sexual activity, whether with the accused or with another person. The reasons it isn't allowed at all in Canada is exactly why sexual history should never be brought up in the case of rape to begin with. Quote, It is not admissible to support an inference that, by reason of sexual nature of that activity, the complainant, A, is more likely to have consented to the sexual activity that forms the subject matter of the charge, or B, is less worthy of belief. Bra fucking vo, Canada. (laughs) You're getting this part right. Judges and members of parliament have also stated that forcing the accuser to give evidence would invade her privacy and would, quote, discourage the reporting of crimes and sexual violence in the future. If only everyone could see it this way, right? The law has been upheld in Canada time and time again when it was attempted to be broken. Similar laws are also in New Zealand, Australia, and in the Philippines. It has been clear through many, many studies that the introduction of such evidence undermines the credibility of the victim to the jury, playing up an old-fashioned myth that the more a woman consents to sexual activity, the less seriously we should take their claims of not offering consent at this time. I read a really wonderful metaphor online, and I want all of us to remember this when explaining consent. This is the cup of tea metaphor. A person may drink one, two, or three cups of tea, but if they say no to a fourth, that no is valid, regardless of their desire to drink the other cups of tea. The same is with sexual partners. A person can say yes time and time and time again, but that one time they say no still counts, and you have to respect it and listen to it. You wouldn't force someone to drink a fourth cup of tea, would you? So now let's go through a few monumental trials throughout history where the woman's sexual history, the clothing she was wearing, or the amount of alcohol she drank was brought up in the trial. In the 1776 trial of Lana Sawyer in New York, I mean, we're going back to like American Revolution times here, baby, 1776, Hamilton references. (laughs) Anyways, I'm sorry, I have to break up the tension a little bit or else I'm going to start crying. So any jokes that are made in this episode are all made in good fun for my own sanity. As a sexual assault survivor myself, I promise you I would never make fun of any of these situations. Anyway, back to Lana Sawyer's trial. A female neighbor testified in her defense that Lana wasn't the kind of woman to sleep with someone before marriage, like sex has anything to do with rape, really. Therefore, she wouldn't have consented to this act. But the attitudes around women at the time made it so that the jury didn't trust this neighbor either because she too was a woman. The all-male jury acquitted her alleged rapist, and from this point on, it would be much more likely for rapists to get off uncharged or named innocent. 
The first nationally publicized rape case was that of Reese Taylor, a black female sharecropper who was attacked by seven armed men while walking home from church in September of 1944. I want to do a full episode on Reese Taylor sometime in the future because this story is such a big part of American history that I feel like isn't discussed enough and is an incredibly important case in the history of sexual assault in this country. In her trial, she was accused of being, quote, nothing but a whore around Abbeville, and that she had been, quote, treated for some time by the health officer of Henry County for venereal disease. Why is this relevant? I just don't get it. Even if Reese Taylor was riddled with every venereal disease in the world, that doesn't mean that she deserved to be raped by seven men at gunpoint against her will. It's not the same thing. In an interesting twist of events, though, there was one white man in the area who wanted to testify in Reese Taylor's defense, saying that she was an upstanding, respectable woman who abided by the town's racial and sexual mores. Ah, I know he was trying to help, but Jesus Christ, oh, fuck the 40s. In the 1959 trial against Betty Jean Owens' rapist, the defense attorneys tried to sway the jury into believing that Owens was a Jezebel, who therefore could not have been raped, because if she's a slut, rape doesn't exist, right? In 1989, an intellectually disabled 17-year-old girl was raped horrifically by members of the Glen Ridge High School football team in Glen Ridge, New Jersey. When the trial began in 1992, the judge, R. Benjamin Cohen, lifted New Jersey's rape shield law to allow testimony about the victim's past sexual history. The defense lawyers, Thomas Ford, Alan Zagas, and Michael Kierkes, Kierkes, I don't, I don't care, fuck this guy, used what one New Jersey law journal called the Lolita defense, suggesting that the 17-year-old was not a victim at all, but a promiscuous seductress who aggressively started willingly participating in sexual acts. The lawyers also claimed that the defendants needed protection from her, a 17-year-old girl, up against multiple rapists. I'm sorry, someone make that make sense. Thankfully, this tactic didn't go over great with the jury. In 1990, members of the St. John's University lacrosse team were accused of raping a young black woman of Jamaican descent. Six white male students allegedly assaulted her at a private party at a house off campus. The victim came forward two weeks after the assault, leading many to victim blame her. She was compared to a woman named Tawana Brawley, who at the age of 15 accused four white men of kidnapping and raping her over a four-day period. For Tawana's grand jury, they found that she was not a victim of sexual assault, though she was found in a dumpster covered in racial slurs that had been written all over her. And the grand jury said that Tawana herself may have created the appearance of such an attack. They also found that the allegations were false and had no basis in fact. She was even sued for defamation. In her trial, witnesses testified that Tawana had run away from home before and spent those nights with boys. She had also been arrested for shoplifting near the time of the attack. So see, even if she was attacked, does it really matter? This is a bad person. They testified that on the day of her attack, she had skipped school to visit her boyfriend. I mean, isn't that just the cherry on top of this just bad girl Sunday right here? I mean, how could she? 
Brawley actually appeared alongside her lawyer Al Sharpton in the group Public Enemies music video for Fight the Power. And in Spike Lee's classic Do the Right Thing, one shot features graffiti reading Tawana Told the Truth. This is a quick one, but in 1999, the Supreme Court of Appeals in Rome ruled that a woman wearing jeans couldn't be raped, reasoning that the rapist couldn't forcibly remove a pair of pants. Yes, we all know this. In order to not get raped, you just need to wear a pair of jeans. It's impossible to get them off. In the Steubenville rape case, a young girl went to a party and was raped by several of the boys in attendance, while one of them recorded it. This case... I know too much about it and it sits so terribly with me. It's so fucking gross and okay, I'll just go on. She was incredibly intoxicated, far past the point of being able to consent, and the rapists were all well-respected school athletes. Side note, and I think I talk about this later in the episode, but it drives me crazy when a defense team will use the number of alcoholic drinks against a victim when that should call for even more evidence that she was raped because you cannot give consent when you are that intoxicated. But instead, some juries see this as a sign of unreliability. Oh, she can't control her alcohol. She can't control who she lets between her legs then. It's so stupid. And it's such a double standard for men, truly. We would never say the same thing about a guy drinking too much. That's just seen as more masculine anyways. And women behaving in that way is just not okay. But again, I'll get into that more later. In the Steubenville case, the victim was labeled a slut in their small town and was viciously tormented by her classmates who had all seen the video of her attack. It's just so disgusting. I hate that there is still this fear of people's nudes getting out or things like that. And actually, I've discussed with India this fear that she still has of her collateral still being out there in the world, which is very, very vulnerable information, whether it be nude photos or videos or, you know, some sort of false written statement. All of these things can be used against a victim. And it's so sad to me that we don't have a better understanding of what revenge porn looks like and how we should not be blaming the person who is in the photo, but be blaming the person who is spreading this photo around. It just makes me so upset that this high school girl was so brutally violated and attacked and humiliated. And on top of all of that, she had to deal with the humiliation of so many people witnessing this assault and not watching it in horror and thinking how terrible it is, but laughing and resharing it and making fun of her. I just, I can't imagine. And sometimes it's too much for people to handle. In November of 2011, a 15-year-old girl named Rutia Parsons in Nova Scotia, Canada, went with a friend to a home where she was raped by four teenage boys. Ratia, much like the victim in Steubenville, had been drinking and remembers very little of the attack, other than at one point she remembers vomiting while she was being raped. The attack was photographed, and the photos were sent all around Ratia's school and all over town over the next three days. Her peers called her a slut. She received threatening texts and also random messages from strangers wanting to have sex with her. 
She told her parents what had happened about a week after the incident, and they contacted the authorities. Following a year-long investigation, the Crown said there was insufficient evidence to lay charges on her attackers. The police called it a he-said-she-said case. They also decided that the photo was not criminal, in spite of the fact that she was a minor. Unfortunately, on April 4, 2013, Ratia attempted to end her life. She technically survived but fell into a coma. She was then put on life support for days until she was taken off the machines on April 7th. There are so many stories similar to that one in particular online, and I decided not to include all of them because reading that, writing it, and reading it out loud to all of you is incredibly painful. It's really hard to think about, and my heart goes out to this young girl who was so mistreated and humiliated and dehumanized and that she would be in so much pain from this that she would choose to end her life it just it just breaks my heart nobody deserves this no victim deserves to go through that and it just makes me so so mad are you ready to shop Rakuten's big give week is back Get 15% back at hundreds of stores, and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free. And when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. I do want to mention another case that I've actually brought up on this show before in much more detail, and that is the trial of Chanel Miller versus Brock Turner. If you'll remember from that episode, in the trial, her appearance, her sexual history, and the amount of alcohol she had consumed that night were all a really big part of her trial. In reading Chanel's book, Know My Name, you can really understand how devastating the divulgence of Chanel's personal life was for her, even though she was a Jane Doe. She felt exposed and dirty and began questioning her own identity. Was she all of these things they say she is? Much of these cases were handled horribly by authorities, but at the same time, many of them also helped change laws for future victims after the fact. And I guess if you have to find a silver lining, that would be it. Much of the treatment of female-identifying victims ties into the Madonna whore complex. According to Sigmund Freud, the creep who coined the term, men with this behavioral complex are only able to see women as degenerates 
or saintly. <laughs> Great. <laughs> the degenerate can be sexually exploited and used, while the saintly woman must be loved and cherished. It's kind of like how men see their mother versus how they would see an adult porn actor, right? Throughout history, women have been put into one of these two categories. And this theory was widely accepted all over the world, thus becoming more accepted to women themselves as well. There was a time in my life where I felt my only worth as a woman, as a person, was what I could offer this one man who I loved sexually. Much of this was due to the way I was treated by men that I trusted to be intimate with. But when I was treated as disposable enough times, I began to rely on that sexual power. I really tried to date like a guy and not grow emotional attachments. Instead, focus on sexual gratification and the power I felt over the man I had sex with in those intimate moments. I thought that the better looking I was, the easier I was at times, the better in bed I was, the more love I would receive. That's not even to say I have a high number of people that I've been with. In fact, it's probably much lower than most people's number. But this manifested in me trying to win over just a few people time and time and time again. And I know I'm not alone in this, that many women have felt or do feel this way about themselves and their sexuality. This was even more heightened in the years that I came into adulthood when the cool girl trope was what all the guys my age expected of the women around them. There were multiple times in my young adulthood where I didn't feel good about intimate sexual moments. Maybe I'd be down to make out, but then the guy would take it further. He didn't ask. He didn't make any suggestions of where he was going or what he was doing. But all of a sudden, here we are. Am I allowed to stop it? Can I say no? Will he think I'm stupid? Will he call me a tease? What if he tells his friends? What does this say about me? On the flip side, what will they say if I do sleep with them? Will they tell them about that embarrassing moment? Will they tell their friends what I look like naked? Will they laugh at me and make fun of me? There's one particular incident that always really pisses me off because there was one night where I was out on a balcony at a party with a group of guys. And while speaking amongst themselves, they realized that they had all been with me intimately in some way, shape or form. I felt humiliated. I wasn't a slut, was I? I really liked each of these guys, and I trusted them enough to get naked and vulnerable with a couple of them. I also found that what I wore and what I said would get me different reactions from the men around me. I have this one bodysuit that I've had since I was like 18 or 19 years old from American Apparel, and it's super low cut in the front and it's backless, super sexy. I bought it for when I played an underage sex worker in a scene for school, which was very common for me since I was so young. And for some reason, my teachers were weirdly obsessed with me exploring my sexuality on camera and in class. But I digress. I love this bodysuit. I've worn it for many birthdays, parties, or anytime I'm going out and want to feel a little extra sexy. They make the girls look real good. But there was this one guy that I went to film school with who I must have met a hundred times, but would always reintroduce himself to me when I was wearing that top. And he would always, without fail, compliment me on it. I've also always had really blue humor. I make a lot of sex jokes, things that maybe some men wouldn't expect a woman to say. And for some reason, once I got into young adulthood and I was around 
a lot of different ages of people. Like my film school wasn't just like a freshman, sophomore, junior, senior kind of thing. It was like anyone could come to this school. I had classmates in their 40s and even in their 50s, a lot of 30-year-olds and people in their later 20s. And I was but a spring chicken. And I started noticing that like a lot of these men were thinking that I was like coming on to them because I was making a that's what she said joke or a sex joke of some kind. And I'm like... No, it's just called humor. And also, I just wasn't prepared for any of that because like I've said on this show before, I was blessed with the best male friends growing up. In high school, I was close with guys like Tommy, Ben, Will, Josh, and a few others who would come and go from the group that I could be in various states of undress during truth or dare. I could take naps in the same twin-sized bed as them and share my secrets with them without ever feeling unsafe, without them ever making a move on me, and with me feeling always respected. When I went home before entering treatment for the first time, this is just a great example of why my friends are so awesome. My friend Tommy was doing his best to tentatively tell me how worried he was about me, asking why I was so obviously killing myself. Was it because I was insecure about my looks? He told me, Maddie, you've always been beautiful. Thinking of that drunken New Year's Eve with Tommy still brings tears to my eyes. He wasn't saying that to get into my pants. He wasn't saying I was just physically good looking. He said I'd always been beautiful. And my friend Ben saved my life multiple times. He was an Eagle Scout and knew all about my self-harm. And he was my person that I turned to when I did it or wanted to do it and needed soothing or help. One time I fucked up. It was probably already 9.30 on a school night, my curfew being 10. But my mom must not have been home and my dad had already been passed out on the couch for hours, dead to the world. Ben picked me up and took me to one of his rich friend's houses that had a hot tub and every brand of pop or beverage you could think of. None of us drank much alcohol frequently at this time, so we would drink pop and sit in the hot tub and talk shit for hours until I forgot about why I had hurt myself in the first place. He would also bandage me up and give me the affection I needed. When I met his now wife, Kate, I told her this story and how important Ben is to me. He has saved my life many a time. And he, Tommy, my high school boyfriend, Carl... Max, Max's bandmates, and so many other men in my life have shown me that there are good, quality, genuine men out there in the world, which is why it hurts even more when predators suddenly appear in my life. Why is it always on women to hold sexual responsibility? When you think of the story I said of me on the balcony, if a man were out with a group of all women he had been with, would he receive the same response? If their friends walked in on them, are they humiliated or are they kind of proud? A man is not called a slut. He's called a hero. Am I just a conquest or a person? I completely did not expect to suddenly be viewed as a sexual object to the men around me once I reached adulthood. It just never occurred to me. I didn't know bets would be made as to who could get in my pants first or that personal things about my body would be shared with others. I didn't know that a man or a boy could tell me they had feelings for me just to get what they wanted from me. I had never experienced this. I had never even thought of it as an option. And I don't say these things as a way to terrify any of my younger listeners. I say this because I wish older people than me had been more brutally honest with me about all sides of sex and relationships. I also want to add that, of course, women can abuse other women as well, and men can abuse other men. 
though I am a bisexual woman, due to severe homophobia around me and self-denial, I've only been consistently intimate with men, so I am going to be speaking more from that experience. There's something called the objectification theory, which provides a framework for understanding, researching, and intervening to improve women's lives in a sociocultural context that sexually objectifies the female body and equates a woman's worth with her body's appearance and sexual functions. But while women hold their own bodies so close to their identities, does that mean that the men around us do the same with our bodies? Has the whole patriarchal system of men making women feel bad about our bodies really given rapists more motivation to value a woman based on their body and appearance? Are we, in some way, teaching them through our own insecurities to treat us this way, slowly, throughout time? We grow up being feared being labeled a slut once we hit puberty and start dating. One of the many infuriating things about the word slut is that there's no concrete definition of what that looks like, or how many partners exactly a person must sleep with before being called a slut. Or does it have to be sex? What does sex even mean? Is she a slut if she just likes kissing and making out with lots of people? The answers to these questions will probably vary from person to person. In Merriam-Webster's dictionary, the word slut means a promiscuous person. Again, define promiscuous for me, please or someone who has had many sexual partners. I read that another word for slut is strumpet, and I like that word better. Anyway, that proves my point that there's no clear-cut way to spot a slut. (laughs) In a more broad sense, girls that are confident or open about their sexuality are usually labeled sluts. With that label comes the idea that this person is dirty or unclean or impure. People view sluts as loud, aggressive, and pushy. Sluts are not seen as deserving of respect. These so-called sluts do not conform to the things that are traditionally considered feminine in our society. Girls are expected to be quiet, dynamic rather than submissive, or independent rather than dependent on men. Good girls are not supposed to get drunk, a double standard of course as men are always allowed to be as wasted as they want without any judgment or consequences. What, babe? I was drunk. You gotta forgive me. The word slut is used as a tool of subjugation of female identifying folks. When someone is considered bad, we think of them as less human. This ties into racism as well, obviously. Black men and women have been classified as being part of a lesser race and have been objectified because of this since practically the beginning of time, and they still are to this day. And it is the dehumanization that is so dangerous. Once a person stops seeing another human being as a person, maybe they can justify their terrible acts against them. Girls who act differently are also dehumanized and devalued. This also discourages other girls from performing the same behaviors, keeping this cycle going on and on and on again, keeping up this fear of being labeled a slut and what that means. And this starts really, really young. There are these subtle nuances of childhood slut shaming that just drive me absolutely crazy. When you're a kid, you're told to cover up, dress your age, or whatever. Girls shouldn't be wearing crop tops. You let your daughter swim without a top on? She looks a little slutty in her dance costume. Don't you think that skirt's a little short? You don't want to grab unwanted attention. In the words of the Spice Girls, keep your mouth shut. Keep your legs shut, go back in your place, blame us, shame us, damsel in distress.
song with my full chest at five and I am hella proud of that now. All of those are nuanced ways of slut shaming children. I also wanted to do some research on the likelihood of women in particular being raped and assaulted and what they were wearing, what kinds of questions were asked of them in trial, and also what can we learn from predators who have come forward and shared their twisted views and logic. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. In many of the studies, they use the acceptance of the rape myth as an indicator for how likely a person is to blame a victim of sexual assault, whether it be a perpetrator, an officer, or a layperson. This is a prejudicial, stereotyped, and false belief about sexual assault, rapists, and rape victims as an excuse for sexual aggression, create hostility toward victims, and bias the criminal prosecution. Ed M. Edmonds, what a name, and Delwyn D. Cahoon investigated public attitudes related to victim attire in 1986. In this study, participants were shown slides featuring a female model wearing clothes that were either considered sexy or unsexy, whatever that means, then asked questions about whether the model might be robbed or raped. Participants believed that the model wearing sexy clothing was more likely to be robbed or raped, provoke an attack, and be responsible for her victimization. Participants also viewed the assailant as less accountable if the woman was assaulted while wearing sexy clothes than sexually conservative clothing. Jane Delhunty Goodman and Kelly Graham tested the impact of contextual factors on how law enforcement handles sexual assault cases, including victim intoxication and attire, in 2011. In their research, they found that female officers, compared to their male counterparts, were more likely to believe a female victim's allegation and attribute less blame to them and more blame onto the perpetrator, as it should be. Female officers are also more willing to press charges against rapists than male officers. In another study, they looked at the effects of officer training in sexual assault, saying that the training resulted in a positive attitude change toward both male and female victims. These women also cited research by Cassidy Hurl from 1995, who examined the impact of victim clothing on judgments of date rape, finding that participants who viewed a photograph of the victim in quote-unquote provocative clothing were more likely to believe she was responsible for the behavior of her assailant, more likely to view the assailant's behavior as justified, and less likely to recognize rape. In their research, Delhunty, Goodman, and Graham also sought to investigate whether law enforcement experienced victim bias. They surveyed 125 detectives, where they too were given a date-rape scenario, accompanied by witness statements and photographs of the victim either wearing conservative clothing or provocative clothes, and a third option with no photo of the victim. 
Victims perceived to be more sexually provocative were believed to be significantly more responsible for the alleged sexual assault. However, contrary to previous findings, provocative attire was not linked with diminished responsibility of the perpetrator, victim credibility, decreased determination that sexual assault occurred, or the likelihood of charging the alleged perpetrator. In other words, while the victim attire impacted the perceived personal responsibility of the victim, it did not impact the decision to charge the perpetrator. In 2005, Amnesty International polled Britons and found that as many as a third of the respondents believed women were partially responsible for being assaulted because of their attire and behavior. And the reason that I think so many people attach themselves to this idea is that it's a really comforting myth. This makes it easier to pretend that sexual assault is something that only happens to other people, people who make bad choices, not to you, who's a good person. A federal commission on crime of violence study found that just 4.4% of all reported rapes involved provocative behavior on the part of the victim. In murder cases, it's 22%. It also found that most convicted rapists could not even remember what their victims were wearing. And here's a really upsetting one because I just have a bunch of question mark, exclamation point, question mark, exclamation point, question mark, exclamation points. <laughs> one in three college men said that they would force someone to have sex with them if they could get away with it and that it has nothing to do with clothing. None of us are safe. Apparently, the only reason that some of these people aren't raping is because they're scared of getting caught. That is terrifying to me. Like I mentioned, in some of these studies, they actually spoke with perpetrators to learn from them what they look for when choosing a victim. Studies show that women with passive personalities who tend to dress in layers, long pants, and sleeves with high necklines are actually more likely to be raped, which is totally contrary to the beliefs of most of the other survey subjects. Predatory men can accurately identify submissive women just by their style of dress, other aspects of their appearance, or the way they carry themselves. A psychologist and criminologist at the Georgia State University, Vulcan Tapali, says, Some of these guys concentrate on people who are easy to overcome. They'll target females, they'll target older people, but they're also looking for cues of weakness or fear. Somebody who's not paying attention, who looks like they're not going to put up a fight, who's in a location that's going to make this more convenient. The biggest thing to remember with what these people are considering is exploitability. Brad Morrison, a convicted sex offender who raped 75 women in 11 states, once said, If I had the slightest inkling that a woman wasn't someone I could easily handle, then I would pass right on by. Or if I thought I couldn't control the situation, then I wouldn't even mess with the house, much less attempt a rape there. Ugh, so fucking gross. Like if they had a dog, then forget it, he says. Even a small one makes too much noise. If I saw a pair of construction boots, for example, out on the porch or on the landing, I walked right on by. In fact, I think if women who live alone would put a pair of old construction boots or something that makes it look like a physically fit, manly type of guy lives with them out in front of their door, most rapists or even burglars wouldn't even think about trying to get into their home. My suggestion is everyone get a pit bull or a dog that barks incessantly whenever anyone gets too close to your house because I highly doubt anyone wants to mess with my place. 
Distraction is another cue criminals look for. Some people think talking on a cell phone enhances their safety because the other person can always summon help if there's trouble. That's me. (laughs) I'm always talking to someone on the phone when I'm walking to my car or whenever I feel uncomfortable to think that maybe someone would feel less likely to attack me because there's someone on the other line that would hear it. But experts actually disagree. Talking on a phone or listening to an iPod, yes, this was an old article that I grabbed it from, is a distraction, and armed robbers are casting about for distracted victims who are, quote, not paying attention, looking like a tourist, having the map out, looking confused, absolutely makes people more vulnerable, according to that rapist guy. Drunken people not only appear more vulnerable, they're also especially likely to place themselves in dangerous situations. Alcohol decreases people's ability to evaluate the consequences of their actions and distorts their ability to predict how others perceive them. And women who are intoxicated, studies show, tend to be extra animated, giving off signals sexual offenders may misinterpret as sexual interest. I feel like this happens all the time. If you're nice to a guy, they think that you're interested in them sexually. If you're joking around with them, they think that you're interested in them sexually. If you're just a loud person, like I mentioned when discussing sluts, again, they might think you're a slut. I don't know. Of course, this isn't to say that women shouldn't be able to drink and have a good time. But if I were to give my own words of advice, stay with a group keep your drink close to you, even covered if possible, and keep aware of your surroundings always, even while drunk, can help you be careful. And if you can, grab a sober friend who doesn't feel like drinking that night, that was usually me, and they can help take care of you as well. A big thing is leave with whoever you come with. I know that it's hard, especially when you meet someone and you, you know, want to leave and get frisky with them. And if that is something that you want to do, make sure that you're sharing your location with some trusted friends. Make sure that you're giving them information about the person that you're leaving with. Just really do your best to protect yourself. It really is unfortunate that the onus is on women so much of the time to be able to set up their own protections for themselves. But unfortunately, it's something that we have to do. And I think that it's almost like through our evolution, where we're more ingrained to think that way anyways. Another thing to just remember for life, drinking or not, is just don't talk to strangers. Ignore someone if they approach you and just keep walking. Also, try to plan your routes whenever you have to walk anywhere and find the safest route available, even if it takes longer. And while all of these things are important for us to remember to be able to move through life safely as a female identifying person, despite the fact that 9% of sexual assault victims are young men, we don't insist that they dress differently. We don't warn young men not to tempt their teachers with bare biceps, knees, or other body parts. We don't warn them not to be a distraction to their female classmates or regulate whether they can wear shorts in the summer to school or tank tops or hell, be shirtless at the beach. When a news story breaks about an adult female teacher who's preyed sexually on a boy, no one asks the boy what he was wearing or insists that he should have known better than to be alone with her. So what's the point of policing skirt lengths or advising young women not to go certain places or telling them to protect their drinks instead of focusing on telling rapists not to fucking rape? We are made to believe that the only way a woman can be safe from sexual assault is to change her behavior, to change her clothes, 
and to never do anything that could potentially increase her risk of being a victim. There's this assumption that rape and rapists are just one of those unavoidable aspects of life, and the onus is on women, who make up 91% of sexual assault victims, to insulate themselves. Now, if only 6% of men are rapists, wouldn't it make more sense on changing the behavior of the smaller population to have anti-rape campaigns that focus on teaching not only what constitutes sexual assault, but actively teach not to be a rapist, to teach what consent looks like, to show different scenarios, to have these very discussions in our health classes and schools, and to let students discuss openly about their experiences and about their thoughts and their questions and their views and challenge them. And if our culture insists on perpetrating the lie that clothing leads to rape, despite all of the evidence in the contrary, then the problem is our culture. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. It was a heavy one for me. I'm sure it was a heavy one for you to listen to, but it was something that I was really thinking a lot about this week, the whole what was she wearing concept and what that says about women and what that says about victims. And it really, really gets my blood boiling. If you have any thoughts on this subject, please feel free to email me at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or DM me on Instagram at angryneighborhoodfeminist. If you want to join the Angry Feminist Book Club or become a member of the Feminist Faves group on Patreon, just go to patreon.com slash angryneighborhoodfeminist. And don't forget to check out the new show I've been working on called Still Learning with India Oxenberg. You can find it on Spotify and most other places you listen to your podcasts. Also, if you like the show and think others will too, please leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts as well as a rating on Spotify. And feel free to send an episode to a friend as well. All right, that's all I have for you today. I'm sending you all a big air hug right now. I'm squeezing myself really tight because we just got through that episode together. That's all I have for you today. With all that being said, I encourage you to rage on. Bye. Love you all. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.